0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is John Cameron Mitchell. John is a director, a writer, an actor, and a singer. He's directed the movies Short Bus and Rabbit Hole... He's acted on shows like Shrill and Girls, but he's probably best known for Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Hedwig, as it's known for short, started as a stage musical in the late 90s, then it became a movie in 2001. It was written by Mitchell and composer Stephen Trask. It's a unique, difficult to describe story. It follows an East German rock singer named Hedwig, played by Mitchell in both the stage and movie versions. Hedwig is assigned male at birth, falls in love with an American soldier, gets coerced into having gender reassignment surgery, marries the soldier, moves to Kansas, loses the soldier, and starts her own rock band. And that is like, that's like the first act. It's a story about queerness and identity, about the threads rock and punk music share with other live performances like drag and cabaret and Broadway. It is one of my all-time favorites. If you haven't seen it, you should. Lately, John Cameron Mitchell has gotten back to writing and recording new music. He's put out an ongoing benefit called New American Dream, in which he collaborates with Ezra Furman, Shushu, and Stephen Trask, the co-creator of Hedvig. Let's hear a song from that project. This one features actor and singer Nat Wolf. It's called Call Me Joe.
1: Sometimes. Daughter,
0: when you're up there Cuny, down John Cameron Mitchell, I am so happy and excited to have you on Bullseye.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's a total dream to have you here. It was, a, it was a, I just happened to be here, and it was perfect.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you knocked on the door. Yeah. Before you became a famous uh, rock musical guy, were you a rock guy? I was. You know, when I was a
1: kid, though, sometimes rock and roll was the music of the oppressor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: even though it was initiated by my brothers and sisters like little Richard. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking We're talking about maybe the 70s? The 70s, you know, so it was like Kiss was very aggressive and, you know, Zeppelin was ascendant. And uh, it was, it's hard to deny Zeppelin, of course. Yeah, I couldn't help but, you know, feel it yeah. you know, when rock and roll hit. But I realized I was, uh, I had to go, I had to come out I had to find myself before I can find my rock and roll. And mine came out of Little Richard, David Bowie, Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, as opposed to the usual classic rock realm, though, of course, they're as classic as anybody. So to me, I had to find myself before I could actually find, you know, punk and and rock and roll the way I loved it. And then I didn't want to turn back, and I got annoyed uh, when my fellow queer people would downplay rock probably because it was you know when they grew up something that was you know they just in Hedvig we have a a joke a punk rock gesture versus a heavy metal gesture and a heavy metal gesture is you know spitting on the audience and the punk is spitting on yourself you know so it's the direction of the aggression that defines the art so to me it was you know Iggy famously cut himself you know Robert Plant would never do that, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he has a beautiful body and it would f- up his sex life. Iggy's like, I don't give a, f-. you know, where I am, you, you know, and that that's the rock and roll that I
0: loved. Which not like you're a god on the stage, but I'm in the f- mosh pit with you. What's interesting to me about uh, that time in rock history is like it's the first time that you're really. Defining tributaries of rock, right? Yes, like, it starts to become academic. A, yeah, that, that rock isn't a, a relatively monolithic force that also encompasses every other kind of popular music, basically. No. And you know, I had I had uh, Rob Halford of Judas Priest on the show one time, who is the loveliest, most charming. Is that man. right? Oh, oh my god, just a Love joy and a delight, Rob Halford. And you know, like Rob Halford was making music that was. Being used by meatheads to beat up dweebs or whatever, I know. And he's just like, "Oh no, I was always this gay and always being this gay. <laughs> like there was no point where <laughs> he made them gay. You know, yeah. he brought the the leather daddy in there, didn't
1: he? But they didn't realize. Yeah, and just I mean, like Freddie Mercury.
0: You know, I mean, it's the same same story with uh, Little Richard. You know, he's bringing this insane revival tent drag act. Into Ed Sullivan. (laughs) Right.
1: And before him, you know, Sister Rosetta Tharp, you know, with her own queer energy, you know, a progenitor of rock and roll. So people forget that rock comes from, you know, the super outsiders, including the queers, you know, every kind of race. You know, there's all kinds of rebellion in music, but the rock and roll one, which has so many Forms And it's going to rise again. You know, the last 10 years has, has been electronic pop um, as the main music of popularity. And only lately are some of these, you know, rock, uh, some of these pop people, Halsey or Miley Cyrus going, oh, yeah, guitars, they can be effective, you know, with an audience and kids are like, ooh, what's that thing? It's a guitar. It's not a beat that's been created on, you know, stolen off of YouTube nothing wrong with stealing, but there's, you know, there is a power in the guitar that doesn't have to be patriarchal. It doesn't have to be what it was before. And the most exciting people working in rock now are non, non-male. non You know, I love Mitski. I love, you know, Linda Carlisle. I love Courtney Barnett. You know, there's so many
0: hooray for the riffraff. These are women-based projects that excite me. You grew up in a military family. Your father was literally a general how much of your childhood did you spend in the united states and how much abroad about half and half it was about 15 places when i grew up
1: and my mom was scottish i lived in scotland for a couple years in school germany for about six years um and then you know and had to keep changing my accent so like i had a british accent when i moved to can junction city kansas and you know in my uh podcast series Anthem, which we just re-released on, so you can get it anywhere now for free. About half of the Anthem is my life story, you know, up till I was 18, going to boarding school, living around the world, uh, general dad, artist, super religious mom, obsessed with the visions of the Virgin Mary, traveling the world to see the Virgin Mary. And the second half is a kind of alternate Autobiography. It's like, what would happen if I had never left that small town? You know, I might still be creative, but, you know, crushed spiritually in a trailer park and then suddenly has a brain tumor, no insurance because you're in Kansas and he's crowdfunding his health care to get his tumor out. So it's been, the last few years have been interesting, you know, being 58, you know, about to hit 60. Um, you tend to look back a bit. Your parents have started, you know, to go in your 50s. And you can't help but look back um, in anger, in relief, in gratitude. And that's when people start going, oh, okay. I realize what my parents had to go through even if, you know, I don't fully accept it. You know, like with me, it was a, a beautiful thing to be able to to look back and take care of my parents who both had Alzheimer's, you know. Uh, at first, a burden and then a gift.
0: Did you like some of the places more than others or were they all just it wasn't about the place it was about who was there a school hallway
1: yeah i still feel the same way it's like i love exploring but it's about who's there witnessing it with you and my best friend in kansas was you know brenda riley and we hung out with the the woman who inspired hedvig and and we've reconnected you know and in our middle age and we see each other once a year and I went to my first high school reunion ever, you know, which was like the 35th, and it was great because after 50, everybody's equalized. You know, when you, when people do those reunions in their 20s and 30s, they're all comparing each other, right? And, oh my God, she's fat, and he's got a big job, and but after 50, it's like we're alive. You know, we've seen law, lo- we've seen people disappear. We've we've survived. We've gotten through it. We've helped people out. And no matter whether you've made a film or you've gone through the Navy or you've just rescuing dogs, you are the same. And, and that that's the great thing about the double-edged sword of, of, of age is that you do, if you allow yourself, you learn things and you start to accept things that you sh- maybe should have accepted earlier. Youth is about not accepting and changing things. And adult, you know, wisdom of of age should be about, okay, I'm okay with, not that I don't want to correct injustice, but I'm not as angry. I'm not, I can see things more clearly. I can see how they're interconnected and I I can see how people can err on their path and forgive them.
0: How did the fact that you lived in a different place every 18 months interface with your nascent queerness
1: well I think it freed me up sometimes you know a lot of queerness queer youth have some similarities in that there's a uh, either you're hiding something and some people can't hide things you know like a very feminine boy can't hide that forever you know what I mean so they're already put in a secondary they're put in the slot that women are even below women you know the second or third class place at best, okay, you're there, you're that guy, you're the queenie guy, you're the butch girl, okay, we might have a slot for you, but it's certainly not, doesn't have a lot of power, (laughs) you know, and in fact, can be dangerous.
0: Was that your circumstance? No, because
1: I, maybe it's because I was, you know, could pass, you know what I mean? And I, I moved around so much that I understood that I had to adapt, and it was part of my queerness could use that if I wanted to hide, which
0: in the 70s you had to do. Did you understand your own? I mean, like, if if I was going to guess, you know, obviously when you move every 18 months, it's possible to, you know, leave your reputation behind every 18 months. you can reinvent yourself. But I also find myself wondering, like, does that also mean that you don't have to deal with your own stuff that Right. If you had to stick with it for longer than that, you might have to deal with.
1: Maybe that was the case too. You know, you it's like being in a relationship with a drunk. You don't have to deal with your own. Shit. You know what I mean? If you if you can keep moving and not have to focus on yourself, yeah, you, it, it can be not healthy. You're just kind of skating through and dilettanting through. And in my case, I think I was. You know, the one thing that was steady, and my family wasn't very emotionally supportive, so it was art, my creative life. So I always had that when I was alone. And that girded me, and it even informed me for my future queerness. So I would read, it, you know, for me it was books, you know, now the internet. But it was certain books, John Ritchie and, you know, uh, William Burroughs, and, you know, they weren't always the most... Mainstream, but that's where I—that's—I love those queer outsiders, and they prepared me for my eventual coming out. You know, when I was young, I knew I eventually would once I was free of certain bonds. So I had a kind of—I—but I I would even buy records that I knew I would like in the future that I didn't like now. You know, like Thelonious Monk. I remember buying that as a kid, and you know, I was a preparer. I still am. You know, I want to be prepared. And then let go completely.
0: I mean, I feel like buying a Thelonious Monk record as a kid is just like is aspiring. Well, it is weird, but it's like aspiring to adulthood. Like, yeah, knowing that like what you want is to have an adult life, which is both a remarkable thing to know you want when you're that age, but also like a little sad.
1: I know. I I knew I choose the right because I put you know a Thelonious song on my actors reel later in the 80s when i was doing you know macgyver and stuff as score and also this outtake of a beatles thing where they're doing a funny voice and only Stephen trask my you know composer in hedvig uh recognized the music both pieces when he saw it in the early 90s my reel he's like "thelonious monk and the beatles" i'm like "how did you" you know so i, I knew we i had a uh, a kinship Right there, and that was my journey, uh, and it's often often the journey of of the queer person and the creative person is finding your allies, finding your partners, um, maybe burning your bridges with with some uh, you know bodies of land that don't aren't useful to you anymore, and then finding your people. You know, that will be your people forever, hopefully. And uh, the the queer person generally feels. There, you you can leave more you can leave where you're from it, it's part of that not everyone can but that that's an option whereas their straight brothers and sisters like well I don't know you know there's stuff here already I'm gonna get married have a kid at 21 <laughs> you know it's like the queer person generally sees freedom and and flight and new community elsewhere as their chosen family so that was very much the case for me At what point in your life did you find romance? Well, when I was 10, I remember being in boarding school in Scotland, and my first crush was uh, the son of a lord, Lord McEwen. And weirdly, his cousin I met years later in New York. He was an artist in New York. But um, he was just a beautiful, you know, a noble so my standards have remained very high. Unfortunately, I certainly had crushes in in high school. Brian Pacheco, if you are out there, <laughs> Scott Moy, <laughs> Danny DeLeon was my first. Um, and I, I was in Albuquerque. Phil Mudd, who I immortalize in um, "Shortbus" and "Anthem," I, I use his his name. <laughs> um, but it was like, yeah, but those things are denied. You know, and and love denied comes out in different ways, and one of the
0: ways is art. So, what about what about actually functionally rather than aspirationally? My first boyfriend. Yeah, it was much later.
1: It was in my thirties because I was so afraid of being, I think, tied down. And after being uh, tied down for most of my life, it was a guy named Jack who I, I write about in uh, in Anthem. And also in my uh, ongoing concert series, uh, The Origin of Love, um, was uh, Jack Steeb. And he was in the band, Stephen Trass Band, that I developed Hedwig with. And he was a wonderful, smart punk rocker with a great sense of humor who didn't have a lot of you know, self-esteem. And he uh, had an alcohol problem. And he ultimately died from it in 2004 and um just after we'd broken up and it was a defining thing in my life and and completely inspired uh both anthem and the origin of love tour and i and i anthem is really about loss and and what do we do with death and the people we've lost but our own mortality and there's a character there uh named um gyro that's somewhat based on jack
0: your 30s is a long time to yeah
1: wait. but you know there's a there's a late adolescence for gay men often maybe less now because you can be out earlier but the 20s tends to be the teens for gay men and then the 30s are your 20s which is when a lot of straight people get together
0: <laughs> i mean i imagine you were also dealing with the consequences of the fact that like Right around when you came out as a young man was the AIDS crisis. Yes,
1: right when I came out, literally uh, 84, you know, it was when I was coming out and, and AIDS was just hitting the headlines and it was scary, but it was also the flush of optimism of coming out. And I was also being safe from the beginning. Luckily that was one advantage of coming out later at that time, I felt like we can, we can beat this and, you know, we can fight injustice and people's homophobia. And I had that, you know, unreasonable optimism of youth in the middle of it, you know, and the people, you know, of course I lost many friends, but I was strange and and felt kind of guilty about that too. You know, that weird survivor's guilt thing that, that is hard to, to justify but it really came home, you know. After the drugs came in, there was about fifteen years that no one wanted to talk about AIDS, including gay men. And then you started getting a, a rush of of uh, unsafe sex, and this was right before prep. And it, there was a, you know, it was similar to what the Holocaust did for generations of Jewish people. You had survivors from AIDS who had the same. PTSD symptoms of guilt and horror and panic that often was, re, you know, revived when, when COVID hit. Certain friends of mine who had been through AIDS, you know, they really freaked them out. And the same kind of ignorance, you know, in the face of, of uh, a obvious health threat, you know, and um, often malevolence, you know, give them what they deserve let them die of AIDS. So I came out of that and have a uh, healthy, you know, disrespect for, for, uh, for leadership in terms of justice and, and health. But at the same time, I'm probably more of a believer in that government can do stuff if it's the right government.
0: Even more with John Cameron Mitchell after a quick break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is John Cameron Mitchell. John created and starred in the hit musical Hedvig and the Angry Inch, along with the movie of the same name. He's also an actor. Maybe you've seen him on shows like Girls, Shrill, or Mozart in the Jungle. Lately, he's been recording a lot of new music. He's released it as a benefit album called New American Dream. Let's get back into our conversation. Let's talk for a minute about uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is the show and film that you uh, created and in which you were uh, the star uh, originally and relatively recently. One of my absolute favorite things, it is a story about a child growing up behind the Berlin Wall, who is gender nonconforming broadly, and in order to get to the other side of the wall, has a gender reassignment surgery that goes wrong because he then eventually identifying as she wants to get needs to get married, or her mom wants her to get married to get over the wall to a, marry a GI. And you know it's all a kind of complicated, complicated stew of myth and you know yeah. fairy tale. Yeah, exactly. It is very fairy tale like. When you started working on that show, it was in a performance space specifically for drag, right?
1: Yeah, Stephen Tresk and I were hanging out at this amazing rock drag punk club called Squeeze Box. And it was the, you know, club of our dreams. It was finally a predominantly queer, you know, rock and drag and punk, you know, based place that was scary and fun because felt like, you know, Max's Kansas City, but better. And, you know, John Waters was hanging out and the, the Beastie Boys are scared of it. And, you know, it was like so much fun. And it was as New York was changing and Giuliani and there was a kind of rage in the air and it was the last years of the major part of the AIDS crisis here before the drugs came in. So there was a lot of punk rage, you know, and Nirvana was ascendant and started in 94. So we wanted to develop it there rather than in a theater, which could tend to dampen the enthusiasm, the rock energy. We wanted to start creating the character in a kind of workshoppy way by doing gigs and clubs the way Hedvig would have. And we did other places too, you know, and eventually went to Fez and and, uh, Westbeth. You know, these were places that were cabaret music, you know, the equivalent of Joe's Pub today in New York. Um, They were, were the crazier stuff that was theatrical would start and be and great music. So that was smart, you know, and we kept the energy and the band present until we, uh, our director, Peter Askin, got us to, we had to build a theater for Hedwig because no one wanted us. We were too weird. Drag was considered low class. Punk was not considered theater. And there was no way we were going to Broadway, so who the hell's going to invest? You know, we found some intrepid investors and they, it, they built a theater in an old hotel, uh, the Jane Street Theater, which had a bar, and it was, like, perfect for, you know, the the Titanic survivors stayed at this flophouse hotel, you know, so it's, Hedwig would invoke their name, you know. They were washed up on strange shores. She's just washed up, you know.
0: <laughs> had you ever done drag when you started developing Hedwig?
1: No, I was... I had done a Joe Wharton play where I was in drag, but I was kind of scared of it, you know, because I didn't like my feminine side. And drag queens were always up to that point, even now are kind of considered priests, you know, they're kind of, or, or, um, mascots, gay mascots. So they weren't necessarily given their full, I mean, it's a, it's an act, but, you know, they were considered a little embarrassing sometimes and, uh, certainly desexualized, um, and Hedvig, I wanted, it, it, you know, she was using, the character was using drag, but wouldn't call themselves a drag queen and wouldn't call themselves trans either. They say that they are caught in the middle. You know, they are the Berlin Wall. They're neither here nor there. They're on the fence in life. They don't belong to, they're a gender of one. And there's a sense of things having been forced on them in terms of gender too. And certainly raped metaphorically as well as literally. So the whole journey is freeing themselves. And the drag is armor. to, Like a chrysalis inside maybe you can develop under the armor. And I brought what I knew from playwriting and from music and stuff. And Stephen brought his incredible songs. So it was an alchemy that I got to be not only a fake drag queen but a fake rock star and and uh and could uh, bring my traditional you know uh well-made play stuff to those forms which was unusual
0: so drag as a form is you know encompasses a lot of different kinds of things you know if you watch Paris is burning or whatever you'll see people who are performing the kind of camp that you might see on RuPaul's Drag Race, mm-hmm. you'll also see people who uh, are clearly, you know, if they had the opportunity to, would identify as transgender.
1: Yeah. Um, so you there's know, always been an intersection of drag and trans energies, but they're two very different things.
0: Right. Exactly. And um, and and I mean, even within drag, that is, um, you know, being performed by people who are very comfortable identifying as men. Yeah. There are a wide variety of tones.
1: (laughs) Yeah. From Um, Dame Edna to... Yeah. To uh, John Kelly, you know, who's a real performance artist, you know.
0: So when you first put on a Farrah Fawcett wig um, to be Hedwig, were you thinking about what kind of thing you wanted to perform because you weren't doing a Supreme song, um, you know, and you also, you know, you were performing some kind of liminal space and gender, you know? So like, were you like, I can't be too camp. Were you? No, I was like, using I everything I
1: learned from the tools of camp and tools of humor, tools of, of uh, aggression um crossing borders you know which is a you know the word trans means crossing and that i was seeing all around me you know and the flow of of uh female male energies the way we define them which are quite different in every culture was what interested me you know and i liked the fact that you know, I saw Mrs. Formica's wig fall off during a song, and then she's like, I can't just have no wigs. So she ripped her drag off, and that inspired Hedvig's, you know, tearing off the drag. And to me, it was like, you know, and I have a, a, often traditionally a, a cis woman playing Yitzhak, who is a man who wants to dress as a woman. So I like the flow and reminding people that there don't have to be rules when it comes to your own gender expression and journey often there's trauma within it and we have to separate that out from what we need you know and just like the punk world which was about freedom suddenly there was a a list of rules that you you know if you violated them you weren't punk and there's a similar thing with gender sometimes it's like you can't just say you're part of our group you have to have lived it and it's like Well, there's also a world where we've all lived different experiences and we have certain things in common, not everything. And we, we explore those places in a spirit of love, cooperation and allyship. And that's my thing. You know, I'm, I was a freak, you know, and I, I love groups of freaks, you know, I love those chosen families. And, uh, even though I wasn't a drag queen, it was at first, like, you haven't paid your drag dues. I was like, you're right and I I need to do that and I need to learn about it but I want to make a theater piece rather than a drag act but the tools of drag are useful for it.
0: So the character was initially inspired by this woman you had known as a kid yes. who was like uh
1: my brother's babysitter. Yeah, domestic worker
0: and and maybe a prostitute
1: on the side, yeah.
0: Yeah. Helga. Um well is there was that on a base that you lived on?
1: Yeah, that was at Fort Riley,
0: Kansas. So was she she a, was she cis? Yes. So. Divorced cis army wife. What was it that you remembered vividly enough about her? It was just her demeanor. It was like, you know,
1: I talk about her as Marlena Dietrich in a tube top. You know, she was world weary and in the seventies and, you know, her cigarette was very long and you know, she seemed to have seen more than we had. And, you know, her it was her uh, smoky weltschmerz that int- attracted
0: us. You developed Hedwig over a long period of time. Was there a point where you felt like you had done it? Like, I get it?
1: Well, I never think of it as an endpoint. You know, uh, it's just whatever we did that day. And there's always another show you know, and I don't think done, you know, I can see less interested, you know, and I don't feel the need to do the musical as an actor anymore, but I am enjoying the origin of love tour where I'm pretty much myself in a kind of drag telling the story of making Hedwig, which is different and popping into the character and out. It's just a part of me, not my alter ego anymore. I do love when other people have their own Hedvig ego and make something out of it and try something new. I hate when they imitate our production. It's just like, do something else. In San Francisco, there was a production that, uh, I forget the name of the theater, but they had 10 Hedvigs, you know, one for each song of different shapes and sizes and sexualities and genders. And I love that. She is a, an exquisite corpse. You know, she's made of all these different people. And even her clothes are patchwork, you know, quilt-like. So to me, it's, it's postmodern, do whatever you want with it. You know, don't cut anything, but add stuff, do, you know, make it your own. You know, I'm not Rocky horror where, you know, the creator needs to legislate exactly
0: how it's done. To me, it's a great compliment when people want to do something different. I listened to an interview that you did on Fresh Air when the movie of Hedvig came out. Mm. So Peter, Peter Clowney hosted the interview. He did a great job. At the end, he asks you what you're working on, what you want to do. And you are so clear that you want to make uh, the movie that became your movie short bus. And it is like you're ready with a manifesto about why there needs to be a movie about the real feelings of sex that is driven by sex. Um the ways that it can be great and transformational and bad and good and and whatever, and it made me wonder like, did he just have this written on a three by five card in his back pocket for fifteen years, and he made it, and he's like, I got it. I think I was
1: no i've been thinking about it, and because I have you know as a director, you often have to pitch to investors and producers and stuff you got to know what you're talking about and and, and have your bullet points and growing up very catholic you know sex was just the worst um and queer sex was even worse so it was and there were some films coming up at that time that were using real sex but they were very dark you know and they were humorless and i was like sex is not you know sex
0: is a lot of things and one of the things about your movie short bus was that it depicted actual sex it wasn't simulated
1: sex no it was all real and the actors were very much part of that. I was like we're on a journey here to to uh challenge ourselves but also feel safe, you know, and it was I was the intimacy counselor. You know, I can imagine to, <laughs> I can't imagine doing it today. You know, I, I we're about to re-release the 4K version of Short Bus this January with oscilloscope. And We've got an amazing, you know, re-transferred thing we're going to have streaming in the theaters IFC in New York, and uh, Blu-ray. And uh, people are like, I wonder if you could make it today. You know, could you get it financed? You know, in the past, the uh, resistance was from the religious side or the right, you know, it was more like this is wrong to have sex on film. Um, It's porn and therefore not valid. You know, I would say that it wasn't porn because I wasn't turning anybody on – planning on turning anyone on and that is the definition of porn and also so what if it is porn you know it's like i like good porn uh but in this case we actually kind of wanted to de-eroticize the sex and show what was behind it but nowadays the resistance might come more from the so-called left because it might be you know there's a sense of uh exploit you know if there's any sex on film it's some kind of exploitation you know anti-porn feminism is back and uh, a lot of young people are having less and less sex and they're they're more afraid of that the messiness of those encounters, uh, afraid of people being taken advantage of, which I think is sometimes being reinforced by their own Puritan you know prudery that comes from something deep you know the way they grow up and then American Puritanism. So I sadly you know sex has kind of disappeared from serious uh, filmed entertainment, and is now owned by Pornhub, you know, which is not n- known for its empathy. Yeah. And I'm not against it, but it's like, I think
0: it, it's just kind of... Commitment kinda, to uh, the upliftment of uh, yeah, the human experience. It's a different upliftment, let's yeah. say, <laughs> for the guys. How So, obviously, when you're making a movie about actual sex, every you know, you had announced what this movie is about, so everybody who's involved... Um, To some extent, extent knows knows what it is. Yeah. And we wanted to write it with the actors so that
1: they were very much felt, you know, part of it and a part of the, uh, you know, creating the uh, parameters of, of, you know, what they're doing, what they're interested in emotionally. They're choosing their characters' journeys, names, backgrounds. They would do a lot of improv. I would write a script and say, you can't learn the script. I still want it to be paraphrased. But if anything feels uncomfortable or you want to move in a different direction, keep talking to me. We worked together for two and a half years before shooting.
0: It's like if Mike Lee made pornography.
1: Yes. And I read Mike Lee's book. Um, but again, I define pornography as something made for sexual arousal. And made this, to tittle. This wasn't. Yeah. I'd say this is
0: more about sex. It's explicit. Yeah.
1: yeah. That's all. So Mike Lee, one of our actors, I actually told him about our project, how we were developing. He's like, oh, when. Touch that with a barge pole.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was like, barge pole? (laughs) (laughs) So what were you surprised to learn when you went into that collaborative process about what the other people around you were interested in about this idea, the other actors, the other artists who were involved in making this work?
1: Well, some were friends and some were new to me. Um, One couple already existed. Another was created by us. Um, But what I found, uh, we did a lot of theater games out of the the Viola Spolin, famous theater book, theater games, just to find our characters. And, you know, we were exaggerating elements of their lives. So, for example, the lead woman had had problems accessing her first orgasm. But I exaggerated and made her what we call pre-orgasmic. She'd never had one. And she's a sex therapist. So she's our our way into this world, this salon, which is strange. And she's the Alice in Wonderland. The other lead is James, who is inscrutable, somewhat depressed. He's making a secret film. You're not sure what it's about. It's he's a lot of metaphors. You know, He's naked and covered in Band-Aids. You know, and crying. You know what's going on. You know he is preparing for a, an act of self harm, and this is a note to the you know to the to those left behind. And inspired by the film Tarnation, you know, by Jonathan Coet, who, who shot himself for for decades, and who has a cameo in the film. So it was. What was surprising was the actors how little the sex had to do with anything. Sex was like the music in a musical. You use it, but it's not about music, right? It's a form, it's a way of telling a story and often has a universal energy, you know, like you don't speak a language with someone, you can listen to music together, you can have sex, they both communicate things without words. Um. So each of them had a journey they were on that I exacerbated, you know, or exaggerated not exacerbated and we had two actors that dropped out who were quite young and I I, one of the challenges was I was said you know it's probably best if you don't get involved unless you already are with a co-star because the long process someone breaks up and things go wrong and I can't legislate that you don't have sex with another actor in this if you're not in the relationship but two of them did and it did end. you know like someone was hurt by it felt bad and they both dropped out oddly they were the only two characters who were not supposed to have sex <laughs> so they, um, but i adapted the direction of one of the characters for the character who became the, the dominatrix prostitute and uh who's quite lonely and you know so each of the actors wanted to follow certain You know, what is it about a woman who can't have an orgasm in a man's world? What is it about the depressed guy in a good relationship? Does that, you know, where he wants to bring in a third person uh, so that his lover won't feel lonely when he leaves? You know, it's like all of these strange things aren't about sex, but the sex tells you how they're
0: going about their lives. It's been a long time since I've seen the movie. Um I saw it around when it came out. Do I remember correctly that you performed conolingus on screen? I do. Yeah. Had uh, you ever done that before? Uh I mean, I don't think you've done it on screen before. I hadn't Correct done me it if I'm wrong. I had
1: not done it before. I did it for my mother so she, I could finally, <laughs> finally do something normal. Um no. She she didn't see it. <laughs> Thank God. She's like, it's in town. We'll go if you want us to. I'm like, no, your father's very <laughs> ill, but we'll go. I don't want you to go. It's snowing. Don't <laughs> go. Um, I did because one of the actors was like, we're doing all this. You got to, in solidarity, either get f***ed <inaudible> or you got to eat some And I'm like, well, on the menu, I, was, I haven't done the latter. And it, interestingly, my boyfriend, uh, in the scene where you see it happen, uh, my boyfriend is is involved too, so so I didn't feel too lonely. And the woman that uh, was very enthusiastic, you know, was a hot uh, lesbian who was you know liked femme boys. And again, it's like we had this flexibility. You know, I wanted to remind people. You know, I wanted to make sure our sex not bombs room was all sexualities, genders, ethnicity, you know, it's like it can flow, you know, you don't have to be just the one thing anymore. And, um, we have a trans man with a sex therapist in there, you know, her and it's, it's all part of that world that we're from. And to remind people, there are, there are shades of flexibility here and we, we needn't uh, label them all, you know, but the the place is a place of, of respect, you know, and that's how we made the film was with respect, making sure everyone felt safe. In the orgy room, I made sure to play Al Green and that we they had plenty of time to warm up. And they were mostly partners already, you know, which made it a lot easier.
0: We'll wrap up with John Cameron Mitchell. Still to come, we'll talk about the Hedvig and the Angry Inch revival on Broadway and how he sees the show differently now, 20 or so years later. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with John Cameron Mitchell, the creator of Hedvig and the Angry Inch, Anthem Homunculus, and more. Let's get back into our conversation. You know, Hedvig had a revival on Broadway that was sort of you getting to get your flowers and your paychecks for that show. Yeah. You had a run as Hedvig after uh, a long run by Neil Patrick Harris. There was a, a bunch of other big stars who played the role, and I wonder after that happened, like when that was done, if you reevaluated where you were at in the context of the fact that you had done this retrospective thing. You know, you had done a thing that was looking at this piece that you had by then made 15, 20 years earlier.
1: Well, yeah, we we found that it was still very, it didn't need much upgrading. You know, we just added a few jokes that were more modern. And I, it's always fun to, I, I, I feel like a, a technician of jokes. I like to go in and try stuff and fix things and, and add things, tinker. What was interesting since then, coming from a kind of younger place, there was a little bit – we had a production of us Aust- in Australia, a large production of Hedvig, that got derailed because someone who identified as non-binary trans said, oh, cis people can't play Hedvig. It's a trans role. Which is kind of odd because a character, to me, doesn't really identify as trans and is coerced into a gender reassignment against their will to escape the patriarchy. In effect, in effect they – They get mutilated by the patriarchy or the binarchy, I call
0: it. And I think Hedwig's identity and body both exist in a kind of mythical world. A
1: mythical kind of uh, liminal world where they're neither here nor there. It's
0: it's not a representation of a particular kind of person that exists in real life necessarily. No, but but the the character is a metaphor. And the character
1: is also a – would never identify – as one thing or another in fact as my trans friend peppermint uh they described it well is that the characters on a gender journey not necessarily of their own uh direction you know and control but it's not exactly a trans journey it's more of a drag journey so when they're forced into a gender assignment that they didn't really want and they you know, their passport, they're forced to be a woman in effect and abandoned in a trailer park in Kansas, they turn to drag. They see a wig. They turn to Laverne Baker and David Bowie and Lou Reed and they create a persona, which is drag and rock and roll. And that is what saves them, is their self-invention of that we call drag. And put on some makeup, you know a wig in a box is the beginning of that i put on some makeup You know, like Peppermint, who actually started out in drag and transitioned later, there that's the intersection there. You know, many of the performers I know have, you know, been in that liminal space. So it felt like I was the wrong target there. You know, it's like to say, well, who's to decide? Are you trans enough to play Hedvig? Like kind of non-binary person, you know, but it, the character is playing Tommy as well. And, you, you know, it's like, to me, to limit who gets to play it goes against its message, which is one of healing, which is one of identifying with someone else. And which is a, a story of abuse and people telling you what you're supposed to be. Um, so I, I'm non-binary by default. You know what I mean? I don't feel the need to change my gender because I'm too old. I have no memory. But, you know, I, I completely reject people deciding who can play Hedwig. It can be any gender, ethnicity, age, sexuality. It is, as Toni Morrison said, in understanding something that is not you, that empathy begins.
0: You have recently released uh, a song with that you wrote with Stephen Trask, who with whom you wrote Hedwig. Um, the two of you had not at least released anything in, in 20 years or so. Um, was it something that you had talked about a long time, or was it something that just one day you ran into each other in a coffee shop? Well,
1: we've been touring off
0: and on with this Origin of Love tour,
1: and I was uh I was doing songs from my new musical, Anthem Homunculus. He was doing songs from his show This Ain't No Disco and uh during lockdown I decided to make a remotely created album called New American Dream, uh with friends. I would ask them to send me a musical track, I would write lyrics and a melody over it, and then we'd overdub. So we did it all for free for three uh Benefit beneficiaries a a trans legal group, an MLK scholarship, and a COVID food bank in Mexico. So, on my part, two, you know, I work with people like Ezra Furman, Hooray for the Riff Raff, Winton Marcellus. You know, an incredible array of people with different styles. You know, like it's fun to do a jazz song and a country song and a punk song and a and a cabaret song. So. Stephen was a natural fit for part two and he sent me a track. I, I was talking to him about the cure and, you know, REM and this Australian band I love called deck chairs overboard, which is a great name. They have a song called that's the way check it out. And I was, you know, in the, we're, you know, in this red blue state, uh, nightmare in the last few years. And, uh, The song is, I want to be a nation of one. I've had it with the polarization. I've had it with my relationship. I've had it with governments. I've had it with, you know, right-wing and left-wing control. I want to be a nation of one. And I think we can all relate to that right now.
0: Well, John Cameron Mitchell, uh, what a dream to have you on the show. I'm so grateful to you for coming in. um, And thanks for your amazing work. What a pleasure. John Cameron Mitchell. His benefit album is called New American Dream. Proceeds from the sales of the record benefit nonprofits like Burritos Not Bombs Food Bank, the TGI Justice Project, and the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Scholarship Trust Fund. We'll have a link to buy the record on the Bullseye page at MaximumFund.org. Also, be on the lookout for a new drama series called Joe Exotic. It's set to stream later this year on Peacock, and it stars John Cameron Mitchell As the title character, the Tiger King himself. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun. In and around Greater Los Angeles, California, where just recently my son Oscar and I donned our masks and hit up the Peterson Automotive Museum, and in the underground vault tour, we saw a car with claw marks from the Black Panther himself. It's a lot of fun. Also one that Elvis shot holes into. <laughs> Cause he was mad it wouldn't start. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson, our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffett. Our thanks to our departing pal, Casey O'Brien, who helped us for many years. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's recorded by the group The Go Team. Thanks to them and to their label Memphis Industries for sharing it. You can also keep up with the show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post all of our interviews there. I think that's about it. Just remember All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.